0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Breakout Culture. My name is Ed Faisy and I'm lucky enough to be the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and
1: I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And this week we're going to be talking about art and design.
0: Yes, we're very lucky to have Sebastian Conran, who is a brilliant British designer, but is also the son of Sir Terence Conran. And we have a lovely discussion coming up with him talking about his dad, his memories of his dad, and kind of how the Conrads have straddled the whole evolution of British design, fashion, food over the last five decades.
1: And we're also going to be talking later in the podcast about a new show at Kew Gardens, and about the opening of a very interesting new arts venue, Cromwell Place.
0: We want to start this week by talking about British design, because the great designer, restauranteur and retailer, Sir Terence Conran, very sadly died on the 12th of September. It could be argued that when he opened his first Habitat store on the Fulham Road in the 60s, he single-handedly changed the way Brits view interior style. Because two decades before the arrival of IKEA, he set out to democratise design, by bringing affordable, distinctively colourful furniture into our homes. He was the first in Britain to bring us the duvet, for example, having discovered them in Sweden.
1: Yes, and I don't think I know of anyone who hasn't bought something from Habitat at some stage. I certainly have, and some of the things I've bought are still going strong and incredibly useful, like a pair of totally indestructible, small, bright red collapsible tables. I use them practically every day. (laughs) Anyway, the Habitat chain grew and grew and soon included the more upmarket Heels, Mother Care, Richard shops and British home stores. When Sir Terence lost control of that empire after a boardroom row in 1990, he hung on to the Conran brand. And the rest
0: is history. Yes, Sir Terence went on to open his famous Conrad shops and a string of upmarket restaurants, notably Bibendum, where Charlotte spent most of her life in Mitchell House on Chelsea's (laughs) Brompton I wish, I wish. (laughs) But actually, I think uh, one of his proudest achievements, possibly his proudest achievement, was helping to found the Design Museum in 1989. He transformed an old banana warehouse in Shad Thames into a palace of modernism. He eventually spearheaded and enabled its move in 2016, revamping the old Commonwealth Institute building in Kensington into the gleaming John Pawson design monument to design and world class museum that it is today.
1: Yes, I know you're a fan, Ed. In fact, in this month's edition of Country and Town House, you can read Ed's review of the current ex- exhibition at the Design Museum, Electronic from Craft Work to the Chemical Brothers, which I know you find surprisingly compelling. Um, anyway, here to talk to us about the Design Museum, British Design in General, and his father's legacy is Terence's son, Sebastian, who runs his own leading London-based product design studio, Sebastian Conran Associates. Welcome, Sebastian. Good morning. Now, we're really grateful to have you with us, particularly at such a sad time as I know you are extremely close to your father, so thank you, thank you and a very, very warm welcome. Now, you recently told me that you, your father believed his crowning contribution to British design was the Design Museum, but what do you think his most valuable contribution was?
2: Uh, well, I think, without a doubt it uh, w- is a design museum, but um earlier on in the sixties I recall the opening of the con- of the habitat in what is now uh, a joseph shop um, opposite the bebendum building, and um it was a very revolutionary way of looking at home furnishes it was totally different from anything else that anyone anyone had seen before i think a lot of people have in their mind that habitat is one style but actually if you look at this sort of the strata of the catalogs you can see how the style evolved um to uh lead and reflect fashion and i can remember when the habitat catalog came out it was like an event.
1: So, what do you think it was? In, you know, about those Habitat bits of furniture that were different from what we see today.
2: I think originally Habitat was um, uh, top quality furniture from top quality designers and manufacturers around the world.
1: You famously did that tweet, which said, "You know, without creativity, there is no culture, and without design, there is chaos." Um, So today, where are you seeing that design, do you think, that is keeping chaos at bay?
2: Well, I think there's a much greater understanding of design now than there was when uh, my father was (laughs) starting off his career. Um, Design was something that was considered an optional extra. Um, uh, In an austerity Britain of the 50s and 60s, you took what was on offer, there was no choice. But now in an era where there is a huge amount of choice, uh, and good design is a given, what we're looking for now is outstanding design and stuff which is, you know, really, I mean, IKEA and uh, Marks and Spencers and John Lewis, they all offer excellent quality of design. But what a lot of people are looking for is really outstanding and salient design, which is leading. And um, so that that is what the Conrad shop is hoping to deliver. One thing that Terence was very clear about is that he did not want to be following fashion because fashions come and go. He wanted lasting products and his uh, way he described lasting products is plain, simple, useful. Um, uh, I think that man cannot live on bread alone and we need a bit of butter and jam on it as well, or honey or whatever. When I'm designing something, I always try and get a, a sort of a quality of why has nobody done this before and get a an element of functional innovation as well as the aesthetic consideration i think there's a huge place also for young up-and-coming designs designers who really understand how technology is working because what has happened in the this millennium is that we're seeing a exponential increase in change compared to, say, the the middle of the last century. I mean, change is happening so fast at the moment, especially technological change, and the opportunity for designers to take technology and make it appealing and appetizing for the consumer uh, is very important. Obviously Apple are the past masters of this and um, before that it were people like Dieter Rams, um, but Sir, Sir Johnny Ive uh, has, has been the, the, the great flag carrier for Britain and the world actually uh, in transforming technology into user experience.
0: You know, it's interesting the Johnny I point. I mean, I was going to say, I'd love, Sebastian, to hear your views on sort of British creativity. Sometimes when we talk about design, we think of the Germans. But really, I mean, my history is not great, but it feels to me that Britain has been a world leader, if you like. That's a terrible political phrase in terms of creativity, really, since the 60s, that we should, I think, be slightly prouder if you like of leading design leading change in, in creativity over many many decades now i would say that in the 50s and 60s
2: it was scandinavian design rather than german design i'm sorry to yes. uh, argue that point but you know, uh, I've,
0: I've i've got a very long tradition of, of my podcast which i've been doing a few weeks of every guest telling me i'm an idiot so no 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 no
2: no <laughs> it no is good. Got...
0: It is good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Up, up, up to a point, Lord Vasey.
2: Um, so um, what I would say is um, I think Britain is, has led. I mean, very clearly in the 60s, we were leading on the music scene. We were leading on the style scene. We were lead, leading on the design scene to a certain extent. But it's slightly, I think we were ahead in, in the leading pack. I would never like to say we led the world, because I think you're, you know, you're suffering from tallest poppy, uh, and I, I, I think it's slightly arrogant to to, to yeah, say one that. One of
0: the leaders, one of the leaders. I, I think what I'm saying is that we we seem to be weighed down by insecurity when we shouldn't be. You know,
2: in, insecurity can be a, a great driver, and um, you know, I. <sighs> I hesitate to say uh, this uh, a, a, <laughs> about my father, but, you know, I think he was clearly had something to prove. And that was one of his great drivers.
0: Where did it come from, his desire to do this?
2: Well, I, I my personal insight uh, would be, um, was uh, I spent a lot of time living with uh, my grandparents and... Uh, when I was a child. And living with his his mother, um, every morning there was a new project. And I I was a child of five or six or something like that. And I would spend a lot of time with her until, you know, until sadly she died when I was 14. It was always there was something you were going to achieve that day. And I think if you're brought up with that sort of a mindset and uh, that, you know, what are you going to I can remember my father uh, saying to me once, uh, you know, what have you achieved today? And I, I, I think there's that drive to wanting to achieve something and to do something and to make every moment of your life worthwhile. Uh, that was part of it. He had a lot of insight from people like Eduardo Palazzi and the people he was uh, working with. And I think a lot of it was through friends, friendships through people like Mary Quant. I think he had a natural eye, a bit like a uh, musician will have perfect pitch. He had an eye for things uh, and he could tell very quickly where something was wrong and what something needed to be done to improve it. So I would say that that was one of his uh, unerring talents right to the end. I mean, I was uh, at his bedside hours before he died and we were talking about the design museum and the, this exhibition that was on there and all all these um other projects and what was happening at conrad and partners and so you know the body was frail but the ego and intellect were still as robust as ever
0: i hope this doesn't sound too weird a question when my father died i got a signet ring and a watch which i've probably lost um My mother is still going very, very strong, but I'm sure there'll be something. Is there any particular object of your father's that is of massive sentimental value to you that will sit in your house and you'll think, that's dad?
2: Well, I know this sounds like a cliché, but I think is a Companion of Honour um, uh, medal or whatever oh, it yeah. is, decoration. Yeah. I, I think that is a huge honour. Um, and um, I was, I mean, you know, we're all proud of everything he's done. But to be get honoured by the Queen herself, <laughs> not by some politician, uh, excuse <laughs> me dig um, yep, uh, right. <laughs> is, uh, is, is something that I would say is, is, is would would be a treasured item. My greatest treasure, though is my memories of seeing him, you know he was very uh, roll your sleeves up man digging the garden and um, I, uh, making things. And, you know, as a child, I got my first workbench when I was six years old and he'd show me how to make things. And it, I spent a lot of my lifetime working in his studio or working by him at Mothercare or then at, at Con- Conrad Partners, pro- practically half my working life. He had this great way of getting... Lots of different people to do in, engage in a big project like Quaglino's. When Quaglino's opened, um, I think it was in the early '90s, and and he took me to this car park in St James's and said he's going to build a restaurant here. And I'd thought he'd slipped a clog. A cog. <laughs> I, I I really uh, thought, what is this guy going on about? Uh, oh dear. Oh how sad! And uh, when it opened, I mean, he asked me to design the ashtray, but he got all sorts of artists and other people to uh, help decorate it. And when it opened, it was just oh, the greatest! It's that
1: staircase, uh, wasn't it? That incredible yeah. giant
2: well, staircase that you went down well, into this room. It was so optimistic. You yeah. des-
0: you designed the ashtray.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, my claim to fame, I'm so afraid, you, you, it.
0: you designed the most stolen object in world history.
1: I was going to say, I have <laughs> yeah. seen a few next Frank Lino's, and people. Ed, have you well, got one? i one. <laughs> of uh, course I did.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> I, right I, have, I, I have to say that when Terence briefed me on the design, he did say, oh, these will get stolen and they will act as uh, uh, marketing uh, promotional items. Over 10 years, we got through 20,000 of them. So, oh. uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: That is brilliant. I mean, I think that is the thing that stands out about the sort of Conran name, because you've all gone on to be highly successful in your own right. But it's the kind of second and third life from being the person who changed how Brits think about interior design. But then Quaglino's was, you know, it was the 90s, it defined kind of the 90s restaurant-going experience.
2: The thing is, he was so multifaceted, you know, the food, the gardening, the design that, The whole way of living and all that sort of thing. What he did is he had this uh, scrapbook uh, that he used to keep that he shared uh, with people that worked with him to demonstrate this is the sort of thing I'm looking at and all this uh, thing. And someone once said to him, Well, look, you should turn this into publish it as a book. And it was uh, published as uh, the house book, and it, it sold a million copies. You know, one of the great things about doing, being a designer is actually seeing your products out in the wild and seeing them in other people's homes, and um, that's that's a terrific feeling. My idea is that I would much prefer my products to end up in antique shops and in uh, brocantes rather than in uh, landfill and. You know, occasionally I do go to a, a flea market and see something I've designed being sold for actually surprisingly more than it cost in the beginning. But that that I guess is a, a a sign of success.
0: Yeah, no, that must be brilliant.
1: Oh, what a great note to end on. Thank you, Sebastian. And that was the very successful Sebastian Conran talking about his own designs and those of his father, the late Sir Terence Conran.
0: Since coronavirus, some of the art world has been developing and innovating fast, but actually conventional London art galleries need to be on their toes anyway, because there was an innovation underway before lockdown, which is now coming to fruition. And that's the newcomer on the block, Cromwell Place, which is in the heart of South Kensington. And it's the first of its kind arts destination and membership organisation. It's housed in five count them, five grade two listed townhouses with 14 gallery spaces, offices, meeting rooms, and it's now the home for some of the world's most exciting galleries, collectors, dealers, and advisors. It's like a shopping mall for high-end galleries.
1: Yes, and both Ed and I visited Cromwell Place separately. I think, um, I can't remember when I went, I think it was either late last year or even early this year, when it was getting ready for an early spring launch, which obviously had the kibosh put on it when lockdown happened. But now Cromwell Place finally opens its doors on the 10th of October. It's a beautiful development, just seconds from the tube, with lovely light airy rooms, high ceilings, stunning original features, all designed by architects Buckley Gray Yeoman. Here to explain why it's so different and what it actually does is the managing director Preston Benson, who's also the founder of really a local group that aims to use property in new ways to promote art. Welcome Preston.
3: Thank you for having me. Preston, how are you? Doing well, very excited. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I would be lying if I uh, didn't say that I was you know, slightly, slightly nervous because of the ever changing uh, rules that are being kind of week- distributed to us weekly. But uh, I am, I'm uh, ready to go. The team is ready to go. We're really excited to be welcoming our first visitors to Cromwell Place next week. So take it from the top. Tell us how it all
0: works. How did the idea come about? Uh, exhibitors have to be members, but anyone can pop in and visit in theory.
3: Absolutely. So the, 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 whole, the whole building is set up with the premise that we want to make art uh, and, and parts of the design is, is open and accessible to as many people as possible. So it, our, our business, Cromwell Place, is very much free for anyone to come and visit. Obviously, with the current social uh, distancing and rules around the COVID, uh, you will need to pre-register. But that can be done quite easily on our, on our website, cromwellplace.com. Um, the, the the business itself uh, came about really as a response to the changing art market, and what I mean by that is uh, things have uh, been moving very fast over the last decade or so. Collectors um, participating more in art fairs, uh, really looking to do lots, of, see lots of different arts, lot, experience lots of different things all in one go. Um, We've seen property prices and we've seen traditional gallery districts changing, evolving and in some cases being, you know, um, sort of, uh, you could say demolished or removed from their from their kind of historic locations. This has caused quite a bit of upheaval. We've seen lots of small and medium galleries closing or rehousing or working from home. And all of these things coming together really inspired us to set up Cromwell Place.
1: So you've described it, um, Preston, as an art fair without the crowds. So tell us a bit more about that. Are you there to protect those small and medium sized galleries, do you think? Absolutely, So
3: we're open to all, all types of galleries of all sizes, but what we have seemed to find or our sweet spot or niche definitely seems to be allowing small and medium galleries from all over the world access to the fantastic collector market that's here in london that being said we do have some larger international galleries such as Lehman mopin who are also members uh, so we're really excited to be able to bring to bring everyone uh, for, you know from across uh, all genres and all all nationalities all destinations uh, a home here in cromwell place
0: for me it seems to me if you're a commercial gallery it's a bit of a no-brainer because you don't have to be in situ if you don't have an exhibition as it were you don't have to keep a place 365 days a, w- a year you can sort of block book weeks during the year is that right or do you have to No that's
3: a- no that's absolutely correct and that's one of our you know one of the innovations of the business really is you know you're not in, in the traditional gallery model you're paying 100% of your rent, but you might only be using that space for a portion of the time. You might be going to art fairs six to eight times a year, and therefore you're, there's a lot of dead money in having your own premises. With Cromwell Place, if you are accepted as a member, um, you can access and use and pay for the space when it suits you as a, as an exhibitionist or gallerist.
1: So if I'm a member of the public and I turn up on the 10th of October and said, oh, you know, what can you show me? What would, you, what would be the five things
3: you'd show me immediately. So the first thing we would want to show you is um, that we are a safe and uh, welcoming place, especially during these these troubling times. So we'd want to show you that uh, the building is secure, that all of the spaces themselves are perfect for social distancing, that you have nothing to worry about by coming to visit us at Cromwell Place. The second thing I'd want to show you is the fantastic architecture and how we bl- we've blended the old traditional five townhouses with a new uh, 180 square meter pavilion gallery, which sits where the uh, garden used to sit. Um, and it's all connected by a really exciting link bridge that allows the collectors and our visitors access to and from each of the different shows. The third thing I'd want to show you is the fantastic uh, breadth and depth of member that we have. Um, we're going to have uh, the artist Billy Childish using one of our spaces um, to actually uh, paint and make art. He's one of Lehman Mopin's artists. We're going to have a fantastic show by Laurie Shabibi, uh, who are really one of the top galleries uh, in Dubai, who will be presenting uh, Mohammed Malehi. Um, We have a really exciting nonprofit show in our Pavilion Gallery, um, which is the Mother Art Prize. And on that point, all of our members are not profit members. We have an honorary membership program, which is to bring the best of the non-for-profit world together and to blend the two creates a really exciting uh experience for anyone coming into the building.
1: Well, it sounds fantastic and actually I have did when I visited I did walk across that bridge and everything and I can vouch for it it's absolutely stunning and the rooms are just beautiful it's a wonderful space so very much looking forward to that being a good addition to London.
3: Thank you for your time. Have a nice day.
0: Looking forward to it. Can't wait.
1: We want to round off this week by telling you about a landmark exhibition that explores the fragility of the natural world. And in particular, the brutal destruction of a once pristine and beautiful area of Australia known for its flora and fauna, Kamai Botany Bay in Sydney.
0: The exhibition is fittingly called Paradise Lost and is on at the wonderful Shirley Sherwood Gallery of Botanic Art at Kew Gardens, which is worth a visit in its own right, not least because Shirley Sherwood used to be my constituent when I was an MP, but that's a little aside anyway.
1: Well, I agree. The Shirley Sherwood Gallery is beautiful. And with all those wonderful paintings of flora and fauna from around the world, it's just just gorgeous. But now Paradise Lost opened on Saturday, and it runs until the 14th of March next year. It's the first solo exhibition by the artist Jan Hendricks. Now, Jan is Dutch, but has lived in Mexico since 1978, where he's been awarded the gloriously named Order of the Aztec Eagle, the highest Mexican award given to foreigners for his work in art and architecture. It's an honor to have Jan on the podcast and he's here to tell us all about Paradise Lost all the way from his home in Mexico. Welcome Jan.
4: Thank you. Thank you to have me on your uh, podcast, in your podcast podcast.
0: You are you are in our podcast, yeah. The, the honour honor is all ours. So we are going seriously international because we're talking to a Dutch artist who lives in Mexico, who has an exhibition in England that focuses on a beautiful lost landscape in Australia. How's that for a tour of the globe? So tell us what it is about Kamai Botany Bay that has made it the starting point for your exhibition, Jan.
4: Well... Uh, it's it's a bit of a long story. I try to keep it short. No,
0: no, we like long stories.
4: Okay, <laughs> we've got no, no, in- <laughs> <laughs> it'll get it'll get long by itself. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I went I went to Australia. Well, actually, since I moved to Mexico, I think uh, uh, traveling became uh, an easier habit. As soon as you immigrate, you keep on traveling. It's like you start with the travel, and you never finish. So I think. Uh, and since i'm working with landscape it was very uh, uh, one of the places i really wanted to go to and visit and it, it all became possible through an exhibition that was set up in 1997 i remember if i remember well the next time i went uh, uh, to Australia, which was a few years later. I stayed at a foundation set up by Arthur Boyd. Arthur Boyd is a, you probably know him, uh, a, one of the, the, the best-known Australian painters.
0: Yes, fantastically.
4: And there I discovered that most amazing botany of Australia, which is totally different from ours, completely opposite, and it it winds and it bends in very different ways than we are used to look at, at uh, landscape. Actually, I found out about that by going for a walk. And the walk, very quickly, I was lost. And I'm usually not lost when I do a walk, but I was getting lost because I didn't recognize the the signs in landscape that I was used to. It's almost like as if water would flow upwards instead of downwards. It's not true, obviously, but it would. That the feeling was that everything was wrong. And therefore, I got really fascinated. One of the reasons why I got really taken by that strange place. One of the events that happened Already two hundred and fifty years ago, uh, in that same landscape, was uh, the arrival of the English. The arrival on the at the end in the end of April uh, seventeen seventy of Cook and Company uh, was also a, a first collector's uh, issue because uh, Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander and uh, Sydney Parkinson, who were on board of. Of the endeavor, they actually uh, got the chance to go ashore, and they collected the first species of Australian plants to take with them to back to to, uh, to England. If you step ashore now on the place where Cook and company stepped ashore, you'll find a uh, an oil deposit, you'll find a container port, you'll find the Sydney International Airport. Now, you'll find suburbs of Sydney in place instead of uh, the uh, the original vegetation. There's a small strip along the coast that is still uh, pristine and still is very much the way it was before. But if that is, I don't know how, what the percentage exactly is, but it's probably 5% of the actual uh, area of Botany Bay.
1: Oh, well, that's so depressing. And, you know, I'm, that's the story... Increasingly, the world over. So, can you tell our listeners a bit more about what they're going to see at the exhibition, how you've imagined this? Because I gather there's a, everything from a giant tapestry to silk screens to enamel plates and a huge walkthrough mirrored pavilion.
4: The other uh, element that is very much, imp- very important with which the show opens is a set of uh, the original herbarium sheets that they brought back, plus the sketches of Sydney Parkinson who was the botanical artist on board of the ship so that the whole story of the uh, the first discovery is also in the exhibition it's historical material that has never been together shown in such a way then there is a uh, uh, film uh, made by uh, Michael Leggett uh, a very dear friend and one of my very important contacts in Australia uh, about the actual uh, situation of Botany Bay now, and then the show goes on into a series of, of landscapes that, uh, that f- were taken from that 5% of the, the uh, original landscape. It's a bit of a homage to botany, and it's also a, a reminder that landscape is, uh, is fragile and that we have to be very careful because uh, it is easily gone and it's easily burned as well as we've seen last year. And we'll see again and again and again.
1: Definitely. And what's that little five um, percent strip that that you're talking about? That's left. Is that now under threatened? Is this exhibition partly uh, a, a piece of activism, if you like, to save
4: it? Well, it's it's very much talking about the fragility uh, as a warning uh, about uh, as a warning for uh, our our st- stupidities that we commit every second and every day uh, all over the world and actually if you look at california now it's it's quite uh, it's quite ter- it's terrifying yeah. it's an exhibition that also happens 250 years after uh, the landing it's i don't think it's a commem- commemoration it's more a warning it's more a a a, a, uh, a story about a place that uh, very much illustrates the great discoveries of the past and our bad management uh how to deal with them
0: well it's been fantastic to speak to you jan and i'm really looking forward to seeing it Q is the most wonderful place and it sounds like the most inspiring exhibition i do envy you your um life in mexico uh-huh. uh, <laughs> it's nice to have a piece of you in london
4: it's a pleasure and uh take care there you too and uh don't, don't go to the pubs too much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're just off to the pub, actually, Charlotte and I. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed this uh, week's podcast. And now, Charlotte, tell everyone how they can participate even more.
1: <laughs> well, yes, I'd actually like to say that as of the 5th of October, there is going to be a brand new Great British Brands newsletter. I'm no also way. There uh, is. I'm also the editor of Great British Brands and we are launching it. It's brand new, and that is going to be on the website of Country and Townhouse, which I'm sure you all know by now is countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And you can also sign up to their other newsletter there, which is great, and see Carol Annette's podcast house guest.
0: Oh, yes. We love that podcast.
1: <laughs> we also love this one, Ed.
0: <laughs> but Carol's is better. Come on.
1: <laughs> well, I say, th- well... <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can't be too cocky.
1: I think that's all we've got thank
0: time. for Shout out to all the diary journalists that keep taking brilliant anecdotes from this podcast and not giving us any credit, like the Times Diary.
1: Yes, exactly. Thank you, Times Diary. Next time you yeah. write about what Ed's been up to, do you think you could please mention our podcast? Thank you very yeah. much.
0: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> right. See you all next week.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.